Hello, and welcome to Theater Reviews from My Seat. In today's episode, I'm going to share with you my theater experiences from May of 2018. May is a very busy month on Broadway in advance of the Tony Awards, and in this episode, we'll cover St. Joan, Harry Potter and the Cursed Child, Three Tall Women, Frozen, and the revival of the Oscar and Hammerstein classic Carousel. In addition, I have the next segment in our retrospective series where I go and relook at an old musical at the New York Public Library Theater and Film on Tape, and we're going to talk about Shenandoah. As always, you can visit the website for up-to-date or archived posts at www.theaterreviewsfrommyseat.com. Now let's get started. First up, St. Joan, presented by the Manhattan Theater Club. George Bernard Shaw wrote St. Joan in 1923, three years after Pope Benedict XV canonized her. Considered one of his masterworks, Shaw went on to win the Nobel Prize in Literature two years later. The Manhattan Theater Club has mounted a serious revival for Broadway, starring Condola Rashad, a three-time Tony nominee for Stick Fly, The Trip to Bountiful, and A Doll's House Part Two. I've been fortunate to see all of these performances, and also the Pulitzer Prize winning Ruined. Having read this play in graduate school and never having seen it staged, I was looking forward to watching this always excellent actress bring Joan to life. St. Joan is the well-known, oft-told story of Joan of Arc, a medieval military figure who helps turn the tide of French losses on the battlefield against the English. She is following the voices from God in her head, which tell her to lead the troops to victory for France and crown the Dauphin as king. In this interpretation of the play, Joan is neither a madwoman filled with rage nor a demure heroic wallflower. She is clear-eyed, focused, and matter-of-fact. Never for a moment do you believe Miss Rashad's Joan has any doubt about her mission. What makes the play thematically rich is that Shaw wrote characters who are not simply villainous. They are also pragmatic and calculated. After her trial, she is burned at the stake, largely due to her rising popularity, which often follows when common people unite around a successful leader gaining power. In 1429, the English and the Catholic Church found a way to bond against a common enemy named Joan. Was she a heretic, or were her visions real? Either way, the church leaders were threatened. The English, satirically painted as idiots by the Irish Shaw, just wanted her captured and killed. How one sees this play largely depends on your worldview. Do you believe in saints and miracles? Is this a tale of politics and hypocrisy? Centuries after Joan was sentenced to death by religious leaders, the church changed its mind. The will of God or a guilty conscience? This play contains a dream epilogue occurring 25 years after Joan's death. I think St. Joan, the play might be the grandmother to Tony Kushner's Angels in America. Both use fantastical elements to make us think hard about what we believe and why. Many aspects of this particular production are quite fine, but the play, rather than the staging, is the meat here to devour. My favorite performance was Jack Davenport's Earl of Warwick, a manipulative and ruthless man. Joan is a threat to the system. A church trial is a means to slander her and make her go away disgraced, rather than as a martyr. You also have to consider whether or not Joan was sane. She lived in a world where everybody was out for themselves, above all else, trying to preserve the status quo. Sound familiar? St. Joan truly is an excellent play. Next up, 
presented by the Classic Stage Company, a revival of Tennessee Williams' Summer and Smoke. Finally, there is a production in the 50th anniversary year of the Classic Stage Company worth shouting about. Thanks to director Jack Cummings III and his Transport Theater Group's co-production, Summer and Smoke is a triumphant reconsideration of a Tennessee Williams play not often listed amongst his classics. In 1948, this drama followed A Streetcar Named Desire on Broadway and was later made into a film starring Geraldine Page, who was Oscar-nominated for Best Actress. The part of Alma Wine-Miller is that good, and in this production, Marin Ireland cements its reputation as a great role and an exceptional piece of theater. Summer and Smoke takes place in Glorious Hill, Mississippi, from the turn of the century through 1916. Alma is a music teacher and a reverend's daughter, impressed by the grandeur of Gothic cathedrals. All her life, she has grown up next door to John Buchanan, a doctor's son, who is more interested in women and gambling than academic studies of human anatomy. Naturally, we are in unrequited love territory. He accuses her of relying on that worn-out magic. Nathan Darrow plays John, and the chemistry between he and Miss Ireland are electric, tense, and crackling. Both performances are stellar. When you surround these fully realized characters with an excellent supporting cast and a production this fine and focused, the result is simply extraordinary entertainment. Transport Theater Group is known for staging reimagined American classics, such as last season's Flawless Picnic and Comeback Little Sheba. The commonality between all of these productions is deceptively simple presentations. Sets and scenes are suggested with as few props as possible. The words and the characters are the central focus. When the acting can rise to this challenge, you are rewarded with quality as high as this production of Summer and Smoke. And now to one of the major blockbusters of the season, Harry Potter and the Cursed Child Parts 1 and 2. Hashtag Keep the Secrets is the message delivered at the end of both parts of Harry Potter and the Cursed Child. No worries here, as you will not need any spoiler alerts. That is a major reason I started theater reviews for my seat. Theater, especially Broadway, is a sizable investment, and too many reviews contain detailed plot summaries, which I believe unnecessarily spoil the experience. As a fan and reader of all the books, I was eagerly anticipating this full-day extravaganza. The show book contains a four-page Journey to the Eighth story, which acts as a refresher and a brief primer for muggles who arrive not knowing the significance of the lightning bolt scar. We are told that this play takes place 19 years later. Harry is now 37 years old. He, Ginny, Ron, and Hermione watch their children board the Hogwarts Express. It certainly helps to know this series, though. When the audience gasps, it's more fun to know why. What's the verdict? First and foremost, Harry Potter and the Cursed Child is beautifully faithful to the tone of the series and its characters. There's still a young adult vibe. The patented mixture of humor, drama, magic, friendship, adolescent angst, and adventure, it's all there. The play was written by Jack Thorne based on an original story he co-created with J.K. Rowling and the director, John Tiffany. The result is a believable continuation to the series in combination with the required theatrical magic expectations of a nostalgic, well-informed audience. What turns this play into riveting fantasy isn't simply our good fortune in spending more time with these characters. 
The creativity is everywhere. The set design by Christine Jones is remarkable. The original score by Imogen Heap is cinematic and breathtaking. Stephen Hodgett's choreography is stunning and inventive, nominated for a Tony despite this not being a musical. The visual effects raise the bar for Broadway magic. And the actors deliver the goods. Jamie Parker as Harry Potter and Noma Dumezwini as Hermione Granger were especially fine. The casting of Alex Price as Draco Malfoy and Paul Thornley as Ron Weasley are ideal. But it is Anthony Boyle's portrayal of Scorpius Malfoy that steals the show in a bravura performance. This epic has a 40-person cast. Mr. Tiffany's direction paces this grand adventure's plot to maximize the seemingly unending peaks and stunning surprises, which is no small achievement. Any problems to note? The five-hour experience does contain some story exposition here and there. Every minute cannot be thrilling, extraordinary, and astonishing. I do have a favorite scene which blew me away. Oh, I know that doesn't really narrow it down very well. I was continually impressed by an avalanche of truly memorable moments. Harry Potter and the Cursed Child is a supremely creative, fresh new monument to this beloved series. You'll have to see it for yourself to guess my favorite scene. My pick will undoubtedly be in your top five, guaranteed. From a modern classic like Harry Potter to an old, old, old classic, next we go to The Birds. A comedy by the Greek playwright Aristophanes, The Birds was first performed in 1414 B.C. The play begins with two middle-aged men stumbling across a hillside wilderness. They are in search of the legendary Thracian king Tereus, who was once metamorphosed into a hopeful bird. Both are fed up with Athens, its law courts, politics, false oracles, and military antics. A brilliant idea is born. The birds should stop flying about and build a grand city in the sky. Not only would they be able to lord over men, they could also blockade the Olympian gods. No sacrifices from humans means that the gods would starve into submission, much like the Greeks had recently done to the island of Milos. Staged in the large St. Anne's warehouse, this production has been co-produced by the Onassis Cultural Center Athens. With the exception of Bird Cause, the entire play is performed in Greek with English subtitles. There is a band on stage for the semi-successful yet indulgent musical interludes. The original also had a chorus and songs. Scholars have debated whether this piece was a political allegory or simply escapist entertainment. Characters who are fed up with law courts, politics, false oracles, and military antics? 2,500 years later and thrust into cray-cray America? The birds feels like both. How to describe this production? We begin with the two men cluelessly wandering around, as if this were a Greek production of Waiting for Gatto. Except, it should have been renamed Waiting for Dodo. Toss in bizarre visuals, which would be completely at home in any episode of David Lynch's Twin Peaks. Add a dash of silent movie realness, and a little French-inspired surrealism. Wrap all of this in a very modestly budgeted but cleverly executed Cirque du Soleil environment. The Birds is the longest of Aristophanes' surviving plays. Parts of this exercise are fun to watch. Other sections drag on and on. While The Birds is creative, amusing, and historically interesting, it is also just too long. 
Might this artistic Greek cassoulet be best appreciated by elite intellectuals? Like the man sitting next to me, repeatedly checking his phone throughout the performance? When it was over, he leapt to his feet, loudly shouting, Bravo! Bravo! I sensed a false oracle in our midst. Back to Broadway we now go with another classic, a more modern one, Three Tall Women. Two-time Academy Award-winning actress Glenda Jackson, Woman in Love, A Touch of Class, were the movies. Miss Jackson returns to the New York stage after a 23-year run in the British Parliament. She plays the 91-year-old, or is it 92, A, that's the letter A, Laurie Metcalf of the newly rebooted Roseanne and last year's Tony winner for A Doll's House Part Two, plays B, a 52-year-old woman. Allison Pill, from The Lieutenant of Inishmore, is the 26-year-old C. Edward Albee wrote Three Tall Women years after he had fallen out of favor. It was a triumphant return to form. Originally staged in 1994, he was awarded his third Pulitzer Prize. The play opens with three women conversing in what is obviously a home of considerable wealth. Miss Jackson plays the cantankerous older woman, regaling stories of the past while curtly admonishing her caretaker, played by Ms. Metcalf. Ms. Pill is the lawyer who has been summoned to try to clean up the discarded unpaid bills and unsigned paperwork. An adopted child of wealthy parents, Mr. Albee was famous for his conflicted relationship with his mother. In Three Tall Women, he explores her attitudes and feelings through various stages of her life. An exceptional piece of theater is given a grand staging here. The set by Miriam Buther and costumes by Anne Roth are memorable. Under Joe Mantello's fine direction, the story unfolds simply at first before turning boldly theatrical. This play is thoughtful, funny, and rich with ideas while being elegantly introspective. These actresses get to entertain us, shock us, make us laugh, and, best of all, give us insight into the human condition from the perspective of wisdom that only experience can muster. I've now seen Laurie Metcalf on the stage a number of times. Given how famous she is, I find it fascinating that somehow her well-known voice and body language somehow transforms from instantly recognizable to slowly morph into whatever character she is playing. Glenda Jackson's A, however, steals the show here. Her role is rich, with biting one-liners and hilarious life stories, juxtaposed with encroaching senility and inevitably impending death. Her performance is crisp and heartbreaking. Three Tall Women is an excellent play given a sterling production. I hope I'll get to see Miss Metcalf tackle A in a couple decades. Next up in the land of big-budget Broadway musicals, is Frozen. The Academy Award-winning song Let It Go from the colossal hit movie Frozen closes Act One. Memorably staged and sung by Cassie Levy as Elsa, the moment is hugely successful. The audience comes alive and the enormous expectations are fulfilled. I did not see this movie, so my review comes largely from a place of fresh discovery or new fallen snow. Overall, I'd say Frozen was just okay. This musical adaptation of Hans Christian Andersen's fairy tale The Snow Queen has enjoyable and fun stretches. 
both of the non-human animated characters, Sven, the reindeer, and Olaf, the snowman, are cleverly rendered and performed. The young men in the center of the story are nicely paid by Yelenai Aladdin as Kristoff and John Riddle as Hans. Both developed great chemistry with the other sister, Anna, who, despite being less magical, has the far more interesting storyline. In the performance I saw, understudy Aisha Jackson was confident, funny, and heartwarming as Sister Anna. Love is an open door. The duet sung by Hans and Anna is a high point. Some of the effects that turn our Norwegian town of Arendelle into a frozen winter are quite cool. Given the visual competition this year on Broadway, notably from the watery wonderland that is SpongeBob SquarePants and the magical wizardry of Harry Potter and the Cursed Child, the scenic design and projections of Frozen suffer a bit by comparison. There are certainly good moments executed. The whole experience, though, falls a touch flat as if we were watching a really well-executed theme park experience. Frozen's creative team is normally top-notch, from director Michael Grantage to choreographer Rob Ashford. I just wasn't sure if they committed to the important decision of which cartoon style they were showcasing. The trolls from the movie here are outfitted as the humans from the movie Planet of the Apes with tails added on. Their song Fixer Upper would not be out of place in a Lion King spin-off. In that scene, I could not sense Norway anywhere. The ensemble here sing and dance without representing much of anything. They are boring, save for the second act opening, which was truly surprising and very witty. All of that puts a lot of pressure on our sisters to carry this show. Miss Levy is a beautiful singer, but Elsa's brooding needed a bit more sparkle, and maybe edge, to help enhance what is oddly the far weaker side of the tale. Her sister Anna's more mortal adventure with her cartoonish companions was clearly the journey I wanted to be on. One sister has the better adventure, one sister has the magic visuals and gets to belt the big song. Frozen never quite pulls everything together, so I have to firmly land on just okay. Next we go to the final Encores musical this year, Me and My Girl. Christian Borle is always so much fun to watch on stage. From his Tony-winning turns in Peter and the Starcatcher and Something Rotten to last year's falsettos, he has built a very impressive theater resume. Casting him as Bill Snibson in the encore staging of Me and My Girl seemed an inspired choice. Based on a 1986 Broadway reimagining of a 1937 musical by Noel Gay, the show is a chance to prance through old-school, grandly silly entertainment. With Christian Borle in the captain's seat, the production is a smooth ride. Our hero, Bill Snibson, is a cockney lad who finds out that he is the long-lost 14th Earl of Hereford. As the sole heir, he inherits the manor, the fortune, and the title, with one stipulation. He must become a proper English gentleman as judged by his Aunt Maria, the Duchess of Den, played by the Grand Ham Harriet Harris. What will happen to his cockney girlfriend Sally? Add in a butler, a vampish gold digger, and assorted characters from both sides of society, stir the pot, and watch them all strut their stuff in the show's famous number, The Lambeth Walk. Try to forget that tune when you leave this show. It's both catchy and ridiculous. Me and My Girl certainly is a swiftly paced piece of smile-inducing goofiness. The best moments were the Act 2 opener, The Sun Has Got His Hat On. As the honorable but not rich Gerald Bolingbroke, Mark Evans delivered a public lesson in show-stopping madcap frivolity. Laura Michelle Kelly 
beautifully sings the excellent Once You Lose Your Heart. As the lady Jacqueline Carstone, Lisa O'Hare, who I loved in A Gentleman's Guide to Love and Murder, she makes a great villainous gold digger gorgeously costumed by Emilio Soso. I saw this production in Robert Lindsay's Tony Award-winning performance during the original run. His Bill Snibson was also a clown, but perhaps more debonair than Mr. Borrell's physically rougher, but still hilarious interpretation. For an evening of escapist silliness, this encore's version of Me and My Girl was an agreeable pleasure. We've been doing a lot of big Broadway, so now let's get off off Broadway. And a revival of Happy Birthday, Wanda June. On the cover of the program, a girl in pigtails is wearing a Happy Birthday paper hat posed with a rifle in her hand in front of green balloons. Presumably, she is the titular character in Happy Birthday, Wanda June, a play by Kurt Vonnegut Jr. Originally produced off-Broadway in 1970, Mr. Vonnegut was at the height of his fame, having just written Slaughterhouse-Five. This play, about a bombastic war hero who glistens with violence and oozes Neanderthal levels of testosterone, had to speak loudly to the burgeoning anti-war sentiment in America at that time. Almost 50 years later, the play speaks as loudly, but differently. The plot here is loosely based on Homer's Odyssey. Harold Ryan is a decorated war hero, having killed more than 200 people and countless animals for sport. He and his buddy, the man who dropped the bomb on Nagasaki, travels to the Amazon rainforest in search of diamonds, but are now missing for eight years. His wife, similarly named Penelope, and their 12-year-old son have been waiting in an unchanged home, taxidermy heads on the walls. The son's hoping for Dad's return. The wife is juggling suitors. Mr. Vonnegut's messaging here was directly addressing the violence of men and warmongering. In 2018, the play miraculously appropriates the Trump era and enriches this wildly absurdist dark comedy. When Harold returns, we meet a raging egomaniac. His third, much younger wife has grown significantly between 1962 and 1970. She is now educated. He says that educating women is akin to pouring honey on a switched watch. They both don't work. Gargantuan brutishness and bluster with a complete lack of self-awareness dominates this character's revoltingly hilarious persona. In a tiny off-off-Broadway theater, Wheelhouse Theater Company has blasted a home run out of the park. Jason O'Connell plays Harold Ryan. The performance is a combustive combination of star turn and train wreck, resulting in one of this year's most exciting actor-character matches to appear on any New York stage. The creative team excelled at striking the right tone visually and in words. Jeff Wise, a founding member of this company, confidently directed and cast Happy Birthday Wanda June. All of the actors were excellent, nicely balanced between convincing and cartoonish. Brittany Vasta's scenic design and Christopher Metzger's costumes were spot-on, complementing the period and riffing on this absurdity of the situations. Is the play a bit creaky and old? Not a chance of coming to that conclusion with this production. Blogging multiple times a week, I see a lot of theater. Sometimes you take a shot and hit the bullseye. When that happens, you remember the company's name, Wheelhouse, and you commit to seeing their next project. Happy Birthday, Wanda June is one of the best surprises of my theater-going year. 
Now we go back to Broadway and the revival of Carousel. Broadway is filled with magical wonders this spring. There is the literal magic performed by wizards within the groundbreaking stagecraft of Harry Potter and the Cursed Child. Elsa's got away with ice and frozen, and there is a spectacular watery wonderland of SpongeBob SquarePants. Now I can add Carousel to this list. The magic here, however, is defiantly and ingeniously old school. Santo Loquasto's scenic design harks back to Broadway magic from when this show originally ran in 1945. This version is a scintillating combination of placing both the story and its staging in the past, such as cleverly painted backdrops, but adding some modern flourishes, such as the opening carousel. Time magazine named Rodgers and Harrenstein's Carousel the greatest American musical of the 20th century. Having never seen this show before, I'm glad I waited for this avalanche of greatness. The book, music, and lyrics are so well integrated from lighthearted comedy to the broodingly darker scenes. The melodies are gorgeous, while the words give insight into these characters and their complicated feelings. Joshua Henry plays the tightly wound but irresistible carnival barker Billy Bigelow. Jesse Mueller is our comparatively innocent Julie Jordan, who falls for him right from the start. Both sing beautifully, and the acting is so natural and detailed that these characters' personalities are heartbreakingly alive and electrically charged. The chemistry on display propels all of which follows, and that chemistry extends across all of the principal performers and a superb ensemble. Carousel and its predecessor, Oklahoma, are famous for their Agnes de Mille ballets. This show opens with a prelude, the Carousel Waltz, choreographed by Justin Peck. The dancing in this show is extraordinary. It's original, yet harkens back to its ballet heritage. The movement from these dancers precisely aligns with the musical notes while embracing emotion and never breaking character. Hands down, the finest choreography in years. Another big highlight is Lindsay Mendez as Julie's best friend Carrie Pipperidge. Carrie has great songs and the best jokes. Miss Mendez nails everything perfectly in character. The first song in the show is her duet with Miss Mueller, called You're a Queer One, Julie Jordan. I found it remarkable that these two actresses sounded like they were singing in a long-ago style. When you add in the visual surroundings of this old-school musical, the rewards are seemingly endless. We just have to thank director Jack O'Brien for an awesome revival of a masterpiece of American musical theater. This carousel is essential viewing and a very special brand of magic. Now let's have some serious fun and go way, way off off-Broadway, all the way to Traverse City, Michigan, and a production of Young Frankenstein. Parked up north with friends, we decided to take in a local production of the musical Young Frankenstein. The venue was the Old Town Playhouse in downtown Traverse City. The company's mission is to be a volunteer-based organization promoting quality community theater experiences for the people of Northwest Michigan by providing educational opportunities and entertainment in the theatrical arts. I saw the original Broadway cast of the show and thought it a rather bland affair. This version was infinitely more entertaining and, importantly, much more fun. Young Frankenstein is based on the very funny Mel Brooks film from 1974. The movie was a riff on 1930s horror films heavily doused in Borscht Belt humor. 
Young Victor Frankenstein, a brain surgeon in New York, is the only remaining heir and has inherited the family castle in Transylvania. The musical added in songs of varying quality, the best one by far is Putting on the Ritz. That song was also in the film. Why is the Old Town Playhouse's version of this show much more enjoyable than the original I saw? This musical seems much funnier in a more intimate setting. Broadway's Lyric Theater is ginormous. This venue has 277 seats. The very funny number, Roll in the Hay, performed on a traveling wagon, was lost on the big stage. Here the number is staged up close, the moving wagon is pantomimed, and as Inga, Danielle Pelschel yodeled like a pro. On the whole, the singing in this production was excellent. Inspired clowning all around, especially by Steve Ford as Igor. I have to give the Best in Show award to John Klapko, who played Frankenstein's monster. This character can make you laugh out loud. In the hands of Mr. Klapko, the laughs were elevated into guffaws. His vocalizations, physical movements, and facial expressions hit the comedy bullseye. The creative team has staged a high-quality production. I particularly love the set design by Matt McCormick. He not only captured the essence of the castle and the laboratory, but he also allowed for cleverly efficient scene changes for what I imagine was a relatively modest budget. For a troupe of volunteer players putting on a nicely orchestrated musical with a $28 top ticket price, this young Frankenstein is and was a grand value. I will be back to the Old Town Playhouse. Kudos to them and their donors who keep our theaters alive. And now, for our next entry, the second in the retrospective series, we'll revisit the musical Shenandoah. Set in Virginia during the Civil War, Shenandoah was a musical based on a 1965 Jimmy Stewart movie. Opening in 1975, the show played for 1,050 performances on Broadway. While it lost the Tony for Best Musical to The Wiz, John Cullum won for Best Actor, and it also won Best Book. For this retrospective series, I was able to view a 1994 production at the Goodspeed Opera House in East Haddam, Connecticut, which has been preserved in the New York Public Library's Theater on Film and Tape. Having just recently revisited The Wiz, I believe Shenandoah is the better musical. Raise the Flag of Dixie opens the show with Confederate and Union soldiers setting the action. We quickly go to the Andersons' 500-acre family farm. Charlie Anderson is a widower with many sons and a couple of daughters. As to why the family is ignoring the war despite its proximity, Charlie sings the song, I've Heard It All Before, noting, they always got a holy cause that's worth dying for. In the local church, the preacher condemns the northern barbarians and clearly states that the congregation's duty is to God, to our neighbors, and to the state of Virginia and our way of life. Shenandoah's plot then takes off, with the family visited by some Confederate soldiers attempting to recruit Charlie's sons into the war. An excellent scene is punctuated by the song, Next to Love and I Like Fightin', as the son sings, Next to smellin' me a rose, I like thumpin' on some toes. Famous horseplay choreography follows with a recognizable nod to Seven Brides for Seven Brothers. As this story unfolds, the Andersons are drawn into the conflict which surrounds them and threatens their family and farm. There are two meditations in the show, one in each act. Charlie talks to his dead wife, Martha. Virginia's gone crazy, Ma. Everybody's screaming, states' rights, war. 
In the song meditation, we hear that this farm don't belong to Virginia. My sons bleed, but not for the South. While Shenandoah is definitely a period piece, its messages still have relevance today. Here's a quote. There's always one trouble with the truth. Once you see it, you're stuck with it. And it's always in the middle, right between two angry ideas. Given our current political climate, it would seem that now is exactly the right time to revive this show. Shenandoah is a well-written story. There are romances, newborns, and friendships. The strength of the book is this juxtaposition of family, values, and a war which does and does not concern them. The youngest son, Robert, has a black best friend, Gabriel, who gets to sing the show's most famous number, Freedom, with Robert's sister at the start of Act Two. Things get darker while Charlie tries to convince his grown children that Papa's going to make it all right. In the final meditation, Charlie summarizes, It's like all wars. The Undertaker is the winner. The critics were a bit mixed in their reviews of Shenandoah, ranging from dumb story to very likable to first rate. This good seed production makes a strong case for the show. The family relationships, in particular the nearly grown adult children, come across organically. That is obviously a credit to the actors and director. Because of that, the story picks up emotional depth and dimensions on the path to its climactic ending. As a musical, I'd say The Wiz has far better tunes than the country and western tinged score of Shenandoah. As an evening's entertainment, I'd say Shenandoah is the stronger piece overall. This story about civil rights, family values, states' rights, and war remains relevant a show primed and ready for a new generation of theatergoers to experience. Once again, thank you for listening to this episode of Theater Reviews from My Seat. Next month, in June, we have an exciting amount of theater planned, including Taylor Mack's A 24-Decade History of Popular Music, which is being performed in Philadelphia and is 24 hours long. I'm finally going to get to see Bruce Springsteen on Broadway. Then I'm heading out to the paper mill in New Jersey for the new musical Halftime with Georgia Engel, who I love, and a bunch of new plays at the New Group, the Atlantic Theater Company, Second Stage, and the Mint Theater. Another big month of theater, and I look forward to sharing my thoughts and opinions with you. If you have any comments or suggestions for a theater piece to be reviewed, you can send an email, theaterreviewsfrommyseat at comcast.net, you can also sign up for email subscriptions to current reviews at www.theaterreviewsfrommyseat.com. Thank you. Have a great day.